0: Good morning. good morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. It's, it's good to be with you all this morning. Um, we're back in the book of Acts and a lot is happening. But be, because we're taking this book one week at a time, it's easy, as, easy for us to lose sight of the fact that this is one long narrative. Luke is telling us how the early church began. And we have to remind ourselves that Luke is telling us a story. And he's a really good storyteller. So in this passage for this morning, we'll see both allusions to things that have already happened and foreshadowings of things still yet to come. But through this passage and for the rest of the book, one thing remains undeniably clear is that God is seen working in and through his church. More specifically, in the text we have for today, we'll see God's power in our presence. We'll see God's authority over our opposition, and we see God's joy sustain us in our persecution. We have a lot of ground to cover, so let's just dive into the text. Let's go again, um, verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now, occasionally through the book of Acts, Luke just pauses the narrative to tell the state of the church at that specific point. He does it in Acts 2, and then he does it again in Acts 4, and then he does it here again in Acts 5. So if this were a movie, verses 12 through 16 would play out with Luke narrating these, narrating these events over maybe some background music from Phil Wickham, right? Over a, a montage of clips of, of, of apostles healing and casting out demons, right? If this were an episode of The Chosen, it would pretty much write itself at this point. But the point that Luke is making with this is that this stuff isn't just stuff that happened. This was stuff that was happening. This is the things that were taking place. This is what characterized the church. And from this little montage, you would see a few things that were taking place. There were miracles being performed regularly to authenticate the gospel. That's verse 12. The people looked at the apostles with reverence. That's verse 13. And souls were being added to the Lord at a rate that had yet before seen, been before seen in verse 14. The popularity of the apostles and their message was spreading into the surrounding towns. So we get this picture of an early church that is just thriving, and their hub was Solomon's portico. Solomon's portico was on the east side of the temple grounds. It had a long series of two rows of columns that had, it was enclosed on one side with a porch over top. It was a place where there was a lot of traffic and a lot of religious people would gather. I tried to think of a contemporary equivalent to that, but all I could think of was homeschool conferences and (laughs) Chick-fil-A. So that's what we'll roll with. And this isn't the first time Solomon's Portico has come up in the book of Acts. We see it in in, in chapters 3 and 4. So let's rewind a bit and remember what happened a couple chapters ago. Peter and John are on the way to the temple. They come across a lame beggar. They they, they heal him, and the people respond in amazement. Peter preaches, and he and John get pulled before the council of Jewish leaders. They're ultimately released, but they're charged not to speak the name of Jesus. And this was a result of them preaching in Solomon's portico. So Luke's casual mention of the apostles going there is actually a flare Drawing our attention to the fact that the apostles were not only making it a point to gather gather publicly, but, but to do so in ground zero for rising tensions between them and the Jewish leaders. Now, knowing this helps us understand verse 13, where Luke says that none of the rest dared join them. A lot of commentators take the rest to be other Christians that were reluctant to be in Solomon's portico because of the threats from the Jewish leadership. But still, in the face of a very real threat, the church had a presence. They weren't separatists. They were engaged. Influenced by the command to go and make disciples. Marked by the statement from Jesus when he says, As I was sent, so I send you. Underneath the declaration that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the apostles weren't content to be idle. But were compelled to go into public places. And if we were to stop here and take note of the first thing that we see of how the church relates to the public square, we would note that the church is present in the world around it. The posture of the church is not one of detachment, but one of engagement. And this is instructive to us because it helps us resist the temptation to idle complacency. And I don't think we need to overcomplicate this. The call for us as a church is simply to be present and Christian wherever we are. Be present and Christian wherever you are. More than that, though, I think we see something else if we look back at chapter 4. After the first arrest for preaching in Solomon's Portico, chapter 4 records this prayer. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. This should sound familiar because this is exactly what's happening. God gave the apostles boldness to continue to preach and then stretched out his hand to heal. And the apostles just go on a tear, so much so that people are bringing people into the streets so that Peter's shadow might fall on them. Luke is showing all of this to be an answer to prayer in Acts chapter 4. So not only is the church present in public, we see God's power working through the presence of his church. But before we move on, I think it's important to note how Luke approaches miracles in Acts. Commentators will point out that Luke, in his writing Acts in his writing of Acts makes very little distinction between the supernatural and the natural. Where he makes his distinction is between the normal providence of God in advancing his gospel and special events he mentions as signs and wonders. Luke sees all of this as a supernatural work of God, whether ordinary or extraordinary. So if we really believe If we really believe that God is sovereign, then we have to believe that God is no more active in the mundane than he is in the spectacular. The book of Esther makes no mention of God by name. There are no miracles. Nothing stands out as visibly supernatural. But in that story, you can see the fingerprints of God's sovereignty all over it. And I think we can agree that when it comes to signs and wonders, our lives tend to look more like the book of Esther than what we're seeing here in Acts. But God is in it still. And the takeaway for us is this. That at one point in the life of the church, God may be manifesting his power, saving people using signs and wonders. And another point in the life of the church, God is manifesting his power through parents on a PTA board. Manifesting his power through people having block parties to draw in their neighbors about, conver- to, uh, about conversations with Jesus. Manifesting his power in your family being faithful, present on the block that you live on. Manifesting his power through my daughter passing out flyers to Village Adventures to people that she doesn't know and telling them that, that it was free even though it wasn't. <laughs> but that, that, that little mistake broke the ice between me and a neighbor that led to me introducing myself, finding out where he went to church and telling him about our church and inviting him in. And so you can't tell me that God wasn't there. Things tend to happen when you're in public. Now this doesn't take much other than a conviction that where you are, you are there on purpose be Christian where you are. There are several stories in the church about how people have been approached by coworkers at work who are struggling, who are looking for wisdom and guidance simply because they knew that that person was a Christian. And in this passage, we see that not only the church present in the public square, we see God's power working through the church's presence. And if God can do this through the extraordinary, why couldn't he do it through the ordinary? Here with the early church, God did miraculous things both in healing and and saving. And this success invited opposition. And we see it in verses 17 through 20. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees. And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the, of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand at the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. The success and popularity of the apostles triggered a response from the high priests and the Sadducees. This is showing us that they're starting to see this, this little movement as much more of a threat that needed to be dealt with. And the response was trying to stamp this thing out by throwing the apostles in prison. And their first night in prison ended up being their only night in prison because God sent an angel to set them free saying, go to the temple and tell the people all the words of this life. This is a recommissioning for them to go into the temple and preach the gospel. And it's almost an immediate undoing of everything the high priest is doing trying to stop them. And this narratively hints at something that's going to be much more fully developed in the coming verses. The powers that oppose God's church in the public square are so small in comparison to the power of God himself that they're non-existent. And to make this point even more clearly, Luke captures the council's response to the the apostles being freed. Let's read it again, verses 21 through 26. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to preach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So notice the reaction the council had when they heard that they had lost the people that they had just thrown in prison. It says that they were greatly perplexed, wondering what this would come to. They have no clue what's going on. And what's more than that, there's nothing they can do to stop it. There's no control over any of it. They don't even know what's happening until someone comes in and tells them that the people that they just threw in prison are back outside preaching. And so for the second time, they have to go and retrieve them. And this time, Luke mentions that they don't do it by force because they are afraid of getting stoned by the people. And this tells us two things. First, that the people are still holding the apostles in high esteem. And second that these are the type of people that throw rocks when they get mad. (laughs) And this is something that's gonna take front and center two chapters from now with Stephen. Let's get back to the text, verses 27 through 28. And when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Filled all Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. This is more of an accusation and an admission than it is a line of questioning. They accuse the apostles of outright defiance to the command not to preach. And the result of their preaching is that they filled Jerusalem with their teaching. This comes off as a bit of a wink and a nod from Luke. Because remember, in Acts 1.8, Jesus tells the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The first stop in the spreading of the gospel outward is Jerusalem. So when the high priest says, you fill Jerusalem with all this teaching, you can say, "Check a, a, a step one, done, and now it's ripe for expansion outward. And that's exactly what we're going to see in the coming chapters. Jerusalem has been filled with this teaching. But they're also admitting that everything that they've done up to this point has been unable to stop them. They cannot control these men. And the last part of this accusation from the high priest toward the apostles is is that they intend to put the guilt of Jesus' death upon them. They want to put the guilt of killing an innocent man on them. let's look at Peter's response, verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So, in the face of being accused of defying the council's command not to preach Jesus, Peter responds with, we must obey God rather than men. And establishes a Christian precedence for civil disobedience. Now, over the past season, the church has seen the application of this tested. And working through this is difficult because it can be complexed and nuanced. We can't spend a lot of time here diving into the implications and teasing out every application of it. But it's because it's not the main point of what Luke is trying to communicate. But I do think it's worth a look. Because it gives us a a very helpful, simple, simple definition of Christian civil disobedience. Christian civil disobedience is saying we must obey God rather than men. When our human authorities command us to do something that God forbids or forbids us from doing something that God commands, it is our obligation as the church to resist. But notice, it says God rather than men. This is important because if our reasons for doing something or not doing something are not rooted in a command from God, then it is not biblical civil disobedience. Christians can do things or not do things for various reasons, both good and bad. But if our resistance to human authorities is not tied directly to a biblical command, we cannot call it Christian civil disobedience because at that point it's something different. Christian civil disobedience is our response when the laws of the land and the commands of God are in conflict. Now, in regards to the second accusation from the council, the apostles were trying to put the guilt of Jesus' death on them. The Peter doubles down and says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Deuteronomy 21 23 tells us that a man that is killed by being hanged on a tree is cursed by God. Peter is accusing the council of not only killing Jesus, but killing him in the most slanderous way possible. The depth of the evil of this act is brought into greater contrast when it's compared to how God responded. They humiliated him and crucified him. God raised him from the dead and exalted him. And I think it's safe to assume that if you kill someone and then God unkills them three days later, you and God aren't on the same page. Yes, God used the cross of Christ to save, but the act of crucifying him was still an act of utter rebellion toward God. And that's what Peter is putting before the council. They are opposing God. And in the, into the faces of, of the people that murdered the Son of God, he says, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. These men are of Israel. So what we're seeing here is that immediately after putting the depth of their own sin before them, Peter tells them that there's grace, that there's mercy, that there's an opportunity for repentance and forgiveness. There's a chance to change and turn and be accepted by the God that they opposed. Now... The penetrating question in this passage is, do we seek the salvation of the people that oppose us? Or are we so filled with anger or frustration that we forget to care about their souls? That's inherent in going into public places with the gospel. Part of being in the public square is being around people that you disagree with. And if our sensibilities are so triggered that we clutch our pearls whenever we hear anyone say something that we don't like about gender or race or politics and we're so insulted that we stop seeing them as image bearers and only see them as enemies, we're wrong. We're in trouble. We can't dehumanize the people we disagree with or the people that we oppose or that oppose us. They are still made in the image of God even though they stand opposed. At Village Adventures a couple weeks ago, we learned that God's grace is outrageous. So outrageous that it goes to even to those that hate him and stand opposed. It even goes to those that hate us and everything we represent. God's grace is so outrageous. The gospel is so powerful that no one is beyond its reach. So what started out as the apostles coming before the highest court in the land ended with them preaching the gospel. Luke wants us to see this because this is a fulfillment of something Jesus said and Luke recorded in Luke chapter 21, verse 13. It says, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. God just subverted their attempts at an interrogation and turned it into another opportunity for a sermon. God's authority over these men is such that their attempts to stop them actually work against them. God's grace goes into public places and it's not always well received. And that's what we'll see in the next verses. Let's pick it back up, verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council, named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, "Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do to these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, came claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about four hundred, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing." Peter's response to the council's accusation enraged them. So much so that they were ready to kill the apostles on the spot. But this time, God doesn't deliver them miraculously through an angel. He does it through a man named Gamaliel. A man that was held in high esteem by the people. A Jewish rabbi and Pharisee, perhaps most known by his famous pupil, Saul of Tarsus. Camelio uh, calms the outrage of the the rest of the council down by urging caution. His point is that instead of killing them, they should just watch him and see what happens. Because they've seen this before. With two other men, one named Theodos and the other named Judas. Both men led uprisings and were killed. And then when they were killed, their movements fizzled and died. His point is that there's no reason to think that this little Christian movement would be any different. Jesus was popular. He gathered some followers and was killed. And if this movement is led by just a guy, it will fade like all the others without any intervention from the council at all. But if this movement is more, if this movement is of God, there's nothing they can do to stop it. Now we need to be sure not to take this the wrong way. In ultimate sense, this is all true. God will succeed and anything born of man will fail. But over years or decades or generations or even centuries, we've seen movements that we know are not of God continue. Jehovah's Witnesses. Muhammad and Islam. Joseph Smith and Mormonism. CrossFit. <laughs> EDM. All stuff that should have died off a long time ago, but is surprisingly still around. So I don't think Luke is recording Gamaliel's advice as a prescriptive approach to how we should evaluate movements. Luke recorded these words for us because we know where he stands. We know Luke sees this as a plan of God. He sees it as an undertaking of God. He sees this as a movement of God. So what's taking place here is that Luke is using the words of Gamaliel to communicate to us what he believes himself, that the church was and is an undertaking of God and thus cannot be overcome. This missional entrance into the public square is not our thing, it's God's. They call it the missio dei, the mission of God. Man's first rebellion, God came down and offered the promise of a seed, the gospel. He's been at this way longer than we have. This is his thing. And I bit my tongue on this earlier, but let's look again at Acts chapter 4, verses 29 and 30 at the prayer. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Look at what he's saying. Your servants, your word, your hand, your holy servant. The repetition of these possessive pronouns show us that this is not theirs. It's his. Not their word. Not their works. Not their mission. And God just redeemed every English class I've ever taken by showing me how possessive pronouns help me in Bible study. <laughs> Grammar is important. The reason this is important is, is to draw is a, it's a point to draw out because the mission that moves into the public square in the name of Jesus doesn't belong to us. It belongs to him. And because it belongs to him, it cannot and will not be overthrown. God has authority over our opposition. We are part of something so much bigger than ourselves that cannot fail. And faithfulness, faithfulness to this mission means you will never be on the wrong side of history. Luke is showing us how unstoppable the church is in the public square because it's God's church, rooting the strength of the church, not in the church itself, but in the God that loves it. Knowing that we are working alongside of God for the sake of his mission is lofty and it's incredible, but it feels like it's 20,000 feet above us. So the question I want to ask is, what does it mean for us here on the ground? What does it mean for me when I'm at work struggling to engage the people around me with the gospel? What does it mean uh, when I have to stand against something in public that I'm opposed to? I think knowing that we are part of a movement by God that cannot be overthrown creates in us two things. Humble dependence and unshakable confidence. A humble dependence because we are not at the center of this. It's not about us. The success of this movement doesn't rise and fall based on how awesome we are. We are dependent on God to move and to direct and to give strength. A humble dependence. But it also creates an unshakable confidence because it comes with divine authority. I was invited to take a trip with some guys um, from the church a couple of weeks ago. Um, one of the guys owns a timeshare and he led the trip. He had been to this place, knew it well, been there a bunch of times, and was kind of and was basically leading it all. And he tells us before we get there: hey, whenever you're on the resort, just charge everything to the room. So we get to the resort, we pull up to the gate, I hear him say his name to the guard, and he says, Golf Villa Six. And the gate's just opened. And so we drive in. We set our stuff down. We ought to lunch. The bill comes. We're sitting at the table. He writes, golf Villa is six. And they take it, and we get up and walk away. The next day at breakfast, we eat our food, and they bring us the bill again. Golf Villa is six. And we get up and leave. And then I go to the gym. I walk in. The guy looks at me like I don't belong. I say, golf Villa is six. And he goes, okay, go. And at this point, I'm just drunk with power, right? There's this market there. I grab a toothpaste and a pack of playing cards, and I walk by, and the guy looks at me and goes, bro, Golf Villa 6. Kept like, at that point, you couldn't tell me nothing, right? Uh, we know how authority works. And if the authority that we have is high enough, we can do whatever that authority commands. And this is what's happening here. It felt like there was no place we couldn't go and no thing that we couldn't do because we were of Gulf Villa 6. The apostles had all authority. They were commissioned by Jesus himself to witness and participate in the mission of God. The divine authority moved them to disobey when they were commanded not to preach. It moved them to bring the gospel where it wasn't welcome. And it, it gave them the confidence to preach the gospel to those people who hated them. Because in the end, God and his purposes will prevail over all of creation, including the individual hearts. We are a church that should walk in humble dependence and unshakable confidence. Because if this movement is from God, it cannot be overthrown. And we see God's authority over the opposition the church will meet in the public square. This council from Gamaliel ultimately prevails and calms the council. And they agree with Gamaliel, but they don't just let the apostles go free. Let's see what happens. Verses 40 through 41. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were accounted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. God's plan and mission can't be stopped but it doesn't mean that we'll be safe. The apostles after being questioned stood firm. They were told again not to speak the name of Jesus and they were beat for it. Protected from death but not protected from suffering. And this is a sober sobering reminder that Christians in the public square will be persecuted. Over and over and over again, the Bible speaks about the certainty of the persecution that Christians will meet. Probably most known in 2 Timothy 3:12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So, for the faithful Christian, it would seem that it's not about whether you'll suffer persecution; it's about when. And, and, and maybe this is the most intimidating thing about being Christians in public for us. I don't, I don't think most of us are, are, are worried about being beaten. But, but in actuality, what's happening here is more relatable than I think we realize. Because you'd expect the text to say that they rejoiced, that they were counted worthy to suffer the pain of being beat. But that's not what the text says. It says they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor. They were publicly humiliated, and I would venture to guess that in the honor-shame culture that apostles were walking in, the humiliation might have stung worse than the lashes. They were disgraced and disrespected and shamed. This is closer to what I think we all are worried about when we go into public places with the gospel, humiliation, mockery, insults. Being present as a faithful Christian in the spaces you walk in might rub some people the wrong way. You might not be invited back. You might be marginalized or ostracized or you might get canceled. Maybe the reason we don't engage the world around us with the gospel is because we don't want to suffer the dishonor that might come from it. Now, it's, it's interesting to note that the Bible doesn't encourage us to be witnesses in public by promising that there won't be any suffering. The Bible encourages us to be witnesses in public by telling us that in the suffering there's joy. Matthew chapter 5, verses 12 through 13. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The and apostles, the apostles in this passage, we see them rejoicing. They felt honor to suffer dishonor. Why? The text tells us why. They rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Now, this sounds counterintuitive, right? People really don't usually judge you to see if you're good enough to be beaten. Most times it's just assumed. But here the apostles rejoiced because they were counted Worthy. Their view of Christ is so high, so exalted, that he elevates everything he's associated with, even persecution. So they saw the suffering that they suffered for his name'sake as a privilege. As Peter was there. I think we can look to, to see what Peter says about this. First Peter chapter four, verses thirteen through fourteen says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. There's an intimacy and fellowship that comes in shared experiences, especially when they're bad in our persecution, regardless of how big or how small God is near to you as you experience this. And there's there's freedom here. Because I think we can be held so captive by what people think or how they will respond to us that that we're reluctant to move and when we really embrace the reality that we will suffer dishonor for the name of Christ, and that dishonor can actually produce joy, what's left to stop us? There's a freedom in the disregard of what your coworkers think, of what your neighbors think, of what your family thinks, about what your friends think. His spirit rests on you when you witness and are humiliated, and when you do those things, you share in his name, there's intimacy there. And where there's intimacy with him, there's joy. So, God sustains us in joy when we suffer persecution. God's power shown in the preservation of his people in joy. So, let's finish up in verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that that the Christ is Jesus. Luke opened our passage with describing how things were happening during a season in the early church. And here he closes again by giving us us a summary on how things were progressing. The apostles didn't stop declaring and teaching that, that Jesus is the Christ. But notice that they didn't only preach and teach in the temple, which was public. They also did it from house to house. They were present in the public square, but that didn't replace them being present in the private places. It's both an outward intentionality drawing people in, in an inward investment, building up the people already there. I love the people at the Village Church. Some of my best friends that I've ever had are sitting in this room right now. My love for our community can't lead to a complacency and apathy when it comes to adding to that community. The church is marked by preaching and teaching Jesus in private And in public. It's both. And as we wrap up for this morning, maybe we just should stop and consider if we're doing both. Are you so outward focused that we're neglecting the people that are sitting next to us now? Or are we so inward-focused that we're indifferent to the people that are around us? There's this interesting verse in Philemon, It's Philemon 6, and Paul is praying for Philemon, and he says this, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. The word for sharing here, the same word for fellowship, it also can be translated as communication. The idea is a joint experience of my faith through fellowship and teaching and worship and evangelism and outreach actually helps me grasp the good things that I already have in Christ. And the reason this matters is because maybe you're here today feeling joyless. Maybe this season for you has been tough and it's led to apathy or boredom. I think this offers a possible solution. Maybe, maybe one way you can warm your heart to the beauty of Christ is by sharing him with the people around you. By worshiping him here and teaching and learning about him at home in private. And also engaging in the public and engaging in the world around you for his name's sake. Maybe maybe one way you can bring some life and vitality into your walk with Jesus is to do what the apostles are doing here. And every day, in the public and from house to house, do not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, that the Christ is Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I come before you, Lord, and I just pray for us. I pray for us. I pray that we would be convinced and convicted of the reality that we are bigger, that we are part of something much, much bigger than we are. I pray that you would help us approach the public, approach the people around us in this humble dependence, knowing that all that we have or all that we can do has to come from you. That we are totally and utterly dependent on your spirit for words, for strength for courage, for boldness, for power. So I pray that we would approach from a humble posture. For I pray that we would also approach with an unshakable confidence in the fact that, that it's you behind us, that this is your thing, this is your mission, and your mission will not fail. So I pray that that would create in us boldness and confidence that we can preach the gospel to people that, 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 that want nothing to do with it or us we'd go into public places knowing that we have the divine authorization to preach Jesus in those spaces. Pray that you give us wisdom to know how to navigate it. Pray that you'd give us the words to say when it's time to speak. Pray that you would shake us out of whatever complacency or apathy that we might have settled into. That you would compel us forward and outward for your name's sake. In son's name we pray. Amen.